Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Uh, we are wrapping up the, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 3. Today we're in verses 14 through 22. As we consider uh, the letter to the church in Laodicea, probably the most well-known letter, um, or at least most familiar letter to people within the church, um, but one that still has a lot for us to learn and to grow from today. So as we hear these words to Jesus, let us open our eyes and our ears, or these words to the church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. Let us pray. Great God and Father above, you have begun a work in us, and you will bring that work to a glorious completion. Part of your work is learning from your word. As we study this passage, may we grow in our love for you and for our neighbor. May our knowledge of your glory and grace grow so that we can see the majesty of the redemption that you offer. May we grow in our ability to discern what you would have us to do in this hostile world. Make us people who are marked by the fruit of your spirit so that you may be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes discipline has to be harsh. I remember not too long after I graduated from college, my dad was trying to get my sister's attention and to have a conversation with her, a conversation that really needed to happen. And my sister knew that the conversation was going to be a hard conversation, so she was doing everything she could to avoid dad. She would leave before he got home from work. She would come back home um, after he had gone to bed, well after he had gone to bed. And, and she spent several weeks avoiding, successfully, she thought, this conversation. Well, one day, Dad took things into his own hands. Everybody familiar with what a a club is? You know, the thing you used to put on the steering wheel in a car to make sure people couldn't steal your car. Well, Dad got up and left early for work one day, and he stopped by my sister's car on the way out of the garage, and he put a club on her steering wheel. My sister got up thinking that she was going to avoid the conversation one more day and realized she didn't have a ride anywhere she needed to go. And her brother wasn't willing either. So my so dad finally came home that afternoon and the conversation happened and began. Sometimes discipline has to be harsh. 
Today's letter to Laodicea is a harsh rebuke and a harsh discipline to the church. In fact, it is the harshest of the seven letters. But Jesus begins, or doesn't begin, but Jesus tells them in the midst of this letter why he is being so harsh with them. In verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. My dad loved my sister. Always did. And he had to have the talk with her. Her discipline had to be harsh because he loved her. And God, and Jesus comes to this church in Laodicea and says, I am being harsh in your rebuke because I love you. And you are stuck in your complacency. You're stuck in your self-sufficiency. And something has to wake you up to bring you back to life. You are on the verge of being dead as a church. And there's only one thing that can bring you back to life, and that is the harsh rebuke of the Savior. So Jesus opens his letter today by identifying himself as the amen, as the faithful and true witness, and as the ruler of God's creation. Amen is one of those Hebrew words that we actually use frequently. We always close our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen. And when we say amen, what we are saying is, let it be so, or let it be true, or let God be faithful to bring this about. It's a declaration of the firmness of our dedication to take our prayers, our petitions to God, and our, the firmness of our desire to have him answer our prayers as he sees fit. And there is only one other time in scripture that the word amen is used as a name. And it's used of God in Isaiah 65, 15. Most of our English translations say the God of truth. But God says, I am the God of the amen. And in that particular passage in Isaiah 65, he is talking about blessings that will come upon the faithful people, the faithful people of Israel, that faithful remnant. And the blessing that he talks about is bringing the blessing of a new creation to this earth, to his people, as he calls them and sets them apart. And, and, and Jesus is identified here as the ruler of creation or the originator of creation. The word can be translated either way. And what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea as he approaches them with this harsh rebuke, he says, you are somewhere on the scale between nearly dead and dead dead as a church, and you need new life in the church. I am the originator. I, Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness, the second person of the Trinity, the one who defeated death and ushered in the new creation through the cross and through the resurrection. I am here to bring you the new life that you so desperately need. So what was the source of the threat to the life of the church that Jesus has to identify himself as the source of new life that they need? Well, the source I see in this passage, the source of their almost death is their complacency, which is based in a sense of self-sufficiency. They can do it all themselves. Jesus says in verse 17, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. This is actually related to the situation in Laodicea in general. In the year 60 AD, an earthquake came in and utterly destroyed the city of Laodicea. 
And the emperor, like he did to Philadelphia when it was destroyed earlier in the century, uh, came to Laodicea and said, look, we will, the, the empire will give you money. The empire will give you tax breaks, whatever you need to rebuild this city, the empire will give to you. And Laodicea said, well, look, we're at a crossroads of three major trade routes. We have a very vibrant banking industry. We have a very vibrant textile industry. And we are well known for our ophthalmology at the local medical school. And you know what? We got all we need money-wise. We don't need your help. And so they rebuilt the city all on their own. And Jesus says the church has taken on the attitude of the city that they had everything they need. They didn't need any help to be the church of God. He says, you think you are rich and have all that you need for holiness and for life. You think that you have gotten to a level in your salvation. You have gotten to a level in your pursuit of holiness that you can handle everything from here on your own. And Jesus says, that's wrong. He said, the truth is that you are actually the opposite of everything that you think you are. You think you have wealth, but you're the poorest of the poor. You're the most wretched. You are destitute and beggarly when it comes to standing in God's presence, arguing for righteousness. He said, you think you are well clothed. White clothing in Revelation is a symbol for righteousness. And he says, you think you are well clothed, but when it comes to standing before God, not only you, you aren't even in rags, you are naked, shamefully naked. And he says, you think you are spiritually enlightened. You, you think that you have it all figured out. But when it comes to spiritual realities and realities of salvation, you are blind. And this reality of their self-sufficiency, their thought that they had everything together in their own strength and their own power and their own righteousness makes God sick. After weighing the works of the church, Jesus declares that they are lukewarm. They are neither hot nor cold. They are in danger of literally being vomited out of Christ's mouth. Now, historically, we look at this either hot or cold. And in terms of, you know, Jesus would rather the Laodicean Christians to be either on fire for him or unsaved on the other end of the spectrum. And we're told that God desires that all people be saved. He has decreed that only some will, but he desires that all people will for all people to be saved. So he can't be happy with somebody being unsaved. So what does this mean? If we look at Laodicea's situation with water, yes, they were wealthy. Yes, they were at the crossroads of three major trade routes, but they had no local source of water. Several miles in one direction was the city of Heropolis, and they were known for their hot mineral springs. They were the white sulfur springs of Asia Minor. Everybody went there to to bathe in the mineral springs so that they could get the healing from these hot, warm springs. But that was one source of water. For Laodicea. It was put in an aqueduct, it was put in a pipe, and it was piped to Laodicea. In the other direction is Colossae, the, the recipient of Paul's letter to the Colossian church. They had the only cold freshwater spring in the area. You could go there and you could get this water that was pure and bubbled out of the mountain, cold, in an area with volcanic activity. It was a rare occurrence. 
And this cold, refreshing water bubbles out of the spring on the mountain above Colossae, and it was put in a pipe and an aqueduct, and it was pumped to Laodicea. What happens to hot water when you pump it for a while, or cold water when you pump it for a while, and it shows up in this area? Well, two things happen. Once it gets there, it's neither hot nor cold. It's lukewarm. And they did not have water treatment plants. They lived on a boil water advisory, or probably should have. You had these pipes that were enclosed and pumped non-treated water for 10 to 20 miles, which were full of bacteria and viruses. And literally, you could be in Laodicea and pull yourself out a, a ladle full of water to take a drink. Within several hours, you'd have a stomach bug that would cause you to vomit. Jesus said, the gospel should make you either hot and bring healing to the people and the culture and the church around you. Or you should be refreshing. You should be a drink of cool water when people meet you in the midst of a world that is antagonistic, in the midst of a world that is steeped in sin. You should be a cool breath of fresh air. But rather, you are this putrid cup of virus and bacteria-filled water that when people drink it, including me, Jesus says, we just want to puke. In their death, in their self-sufficiency, Jesus said, the culture doesn't even want anything to do with you. I don't want to do anything with you. You're just sitting there thinking you're rich, thinking you're important, and you are nothing. You're a plague on society. You're a plague on the church. And, and Jesus says, but you don't have to be this. I am the source of the new creation. I am the, the new life that you need in your church. And I'm going to bring the remedy to you. He says, first, you must buy gold refined in fire from Jesus. The banking industry brought a lot of gold into Laodicea. And gold, when it is mined, gold, when it is shipped, is not always pure. And the way to get the impurities out of gold is to melt it down. As it melts down, as the impurities melt down, the impurities float to the top and you can skim them off. And you're left with pure gold. Jesus said, you are so ineffective in your culture. You are so ineffective in the city that you've never suffered the purifying tribulations that come upon the people of God. He said, so I'm going to bring tribulation upon you. I'm going to bring difficulty on you and you are going to be purified. You're either going to be purified or crushed and I'm bringing it to you in love. So my hope is that you'll be purified, but you need to be purified gold. You need to buy the gold from Jesus. Secondly, he says, you are to buy white robes to cover their shame. Large uh, textile industry, they had a, a strain of sheep that, that provided the most luxurious black shiny wool that, that people wanted. And, and it was a large provision of clothing for the empire and for the area. But Martin Kittle says, Laodicea might supply the whole world with her tunics and clothing materials. But righteousness was the garment which God demanded. And this they must get from Christ. You may own the latest and greatest brands and fashions, but you are naked before God in the guilt and shame of your sins unless you buy righteousness from Jesus. 
Thirdly, he says you are to buy eye salve to cure the spiritual blindness. Some of the minerals in the mountains around Laodicea, it was found that if they, they mix those minerals just right with you know gooey stuff that you, know, you could make a salve with, that it helped with eye inflammation and helped uh, heal some of the, uh, the, the eye problems of the day. And Jesus says, you think you can see clearly. You think you can see the way forward in your own strength, the glory to righteousness, to holiness, but you're blind and you need me to cure your spiritual blindness. In John 9, Jesus heals the man who had been born blind and, and, and he had been kicked out of the synagogue and Jesus comes and reveals himself to the man as the Messiah. And, and the description is that, that his eyes were opened, his spiritual blindness his pursuit of righteousness to the law, that the blindness that that caused opened his eyes. And the religious leaders say, well, we can see the way forward to righteousness. Are you saying that we're blind because we don't see you as the way forward to righteousness? And Jesus says, well, because you think you can see the way, you're blind. And the Laodiceans here think they see the way through righteousness in their own strength. And Jesus says, you need to have your eyes opened by me, the fact that you think you can see all that is necessary for righteousness makes you blind to the truth that I am the way, the truth, and the life. The churches in Laodicea is a disgust to Jesus because of their complacency and self-sufficiency, and they are called to buy the means necessary to find true life in Jesus. And this is where we get to the price of supper. How did he open this up? He says, you think you're rich. You think you have everything you need, but you are poor. You are pitiable. And those are words that describe those those people that sit on the side of the road in abject poverty with barely a stitch of clothing to cover themselves, just hoping somebody will come by and drop a copper in in the cup so that maybe they can get a meal this day or this week. And Jesus says, you have to buy from me, but they don't have anything. So so what's the cost? The cost is repentance. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Repentance is an honest evaluation of who we are, who God is, and why we need Jesus because of those two truths. Repentance is looking at our life and saying, I cannot get righteousness on my own. So I turn to Jesus as my only hope. Repentance is saying, even though I am righteous in Christ, I still struggle and wrestle with sin. So I I go about the daily spirit empowered work of turning from that sin and turning back toward God and righteousness, because that is where my hope is. That is where my riches lie. That is who I am. And Jesus says, if you do that, I will come in and sup and fellowship with you now. Now, he opens up here in this very familiar passage. We've usually heard it in evangelistic messages or or quote-unquote revivals. But he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This isn't an evangelistic call. This is the call of the husband to his wayward wife. We read in Hosea, or excuse me, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, although Hosea is another good source for the call of the husband to the wayward wife. We see, we see the wife in bed. She's, she's changed her clothes already. She's already taken off her makeup and cleaned her feet, and, and she's laying in bed, and, and the husband's coming home from work late. He's been out in the fields, and, 
And he knocks on the door because the door is locked. And what's the wife's response? You know, I'm already dressed for bed. I've already washed my feet. I'm not going to get up and get dirty. So he knocks some more and he gets insistent. And finally, he gives up and goes away. And she realizes what she's done wrong, but it's too late at that point. And Jesus said, we are in that situation. You are trying to do your work, your ministry without my power, without my life. I'm still right here. Don't forget that I am here. Let me in and I will sup. I will feast with you. And there's three responses to Jesus' call that we see. The first is that you get to sit in a place of honor. You will sit with Jesus on his throne. We'll see in chapter five, in chapter, or excuse me, chapter four, chapter five, and chapter seven, and other places throughout the book of Revelation as we move our way through it, the, the elders seated around the throne. They're in a place of honor. If you open the door for Jesus, if you repent and, and earnestly pursue ministry and life and righteousness in him, he will put you in a place of honor. Secondly, he will give you rest from your toils. You will sit in his presence on his throne, which is the position of rest, the position of, of, of relaxation. But thirdly, you will have communion with Jesus. You know, we have this very efficient way of eating supper. You know, a lot of us see, you know, can we get this? Can we get supper done in under five minutes flat? You cook it, you put it on the table, you sit down, you shovel it in. You, you say, thanks, honey, it was delicious. And you get up and you go. It's not how supper works in this time frame or even in many cultures today. You might show up, you might be invited to somebody's house for supper. And they say, be here around 530. And you get there around 5.30 and there's drinks and, and a light hors d'oeuvre on the table and you're, you're seated around the table and you're, for the next hour, hour and a half, you're just lightly nibbling on the, on the hors d'oeuvres, conversing and fellowshipping with one another. What, wherever the conversation goes, whether it remains on surface level things or whether you dive down deep into, into personal needs, it's a time of conversation. And then after that hour or an hour and a half, maybe the salad gets served. Once again, you nibble on that salad for an hour, hour and a half, and you fellowship, you talk, you converse. Supper in some of these cultures is a full-time job. And then, then the, the main meal is served. And once again, you're nibbling and conversing. And then if you have dessert, divert, dessert is finally served. And you got there at 5.30 and, and maybe somewhere around 10.30 or 11 or 11.30 at midnight, you finally head on home because you have fellowship together. And Jesus says, I'm here knocking at the door, bringing life, bringing fellowship to you. If you let me in, I'll be the host that brings the meal. If you let me in, I will bring life. I will bring fellowship. I will bring communion back into the church. And you will be something that is either hot and brings healing or cold and brings refreshment. Brothers and sisters, you and I may have started well in our walk with Christ. But how are we doing today? Have you forgotten that the same message of forgiveness through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the same message that reconciled you with God, walks you through holiness? You know, you may have found past victory over sins in your life, but, but have you begun to rely in your own strength as you pursue holiness? You may have found rest from the trials and the difficulties and the weight of this life. 
But are you now battered by trying to weather those storms on your own? You may even have found the sweetness of fellowship with Christ through repentance and earnestly pursuing him. And yet now you're trying to force that feeling in your own strength and in your own wealth. And Jesus says to you, I am here. Let me help before it's too late. The church in Laodicea was complacent in their self-sufficiency. And Jesus says, wake up. It's time for life. And I bring that life. Warren Wearsby says, honesty is the beginning of true blessing. As we admit what we are, confess our sins, and receive from God all that we need. If we want God's best for our lives and churches, we must be honest with God and let God be honest with us. Brothers and sisters, sometimes discipline is harsh. Sometimes God's trying to get our attention and we walk out to the garage and there's a club on the steering wheel. Sometimes we seek revival in our own lives and our own families and we seek that revival in our own power. You are the one who will conquer sin. You are the one who will fix your marriage. You are the one who will change the life of your children or your spouse or your friends. And Jesus is actively knocking and calling out, I'm here. Don't do this without me. You can't. You will only fail. Brothers and sisters, true change in our lives, true change in our community comes through taking our sins, our anxieties, our failures, our marriages, our children, our friends, each and every one of those things to the cross. You cannot work holiness. That is a work which Jesus began and Jesus will bring to completion. Remind yourself of the grace which is offered through the work of Jesus. Remind yourself that you are dependent on Jesus and on Jesus alone. Remember that you will be tested and purified through the fires of tribulation. Remember that in all of this, Jesus loves you. His harsh discipline will bring life to the lifeless and power to the powerless. Let us pray. Our God and Father, forgive our arrogance in thinking that we have everything we need for life, for ministry, for holiness, for righteousness, for victory over sin. Thank you for your harsh discipline when it comes, and thank you that you love us enough to drag us back into your presence so that we might commune with you and find the life that you give. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking with my sister this week. I did have permission to share that story earlier, just so everybody knows. She's not going to be surprised if she happens to click a link later today. But as, as harsh as that discipline was, we can now laugh at it together because it did bring life. It brought reconciliation and it, it brought peace to the house once again. And, and that's what God does as he seeks to knock and to call us is because he is seeking to bring peace and turmoil Love in the midst of anger and hate and reconciliation in the midst of conflict. And so as we go this week, and you may be under God's discipline. I don't know. But if you are, it's because he loves you and he is seeking his glory and your good. And so as you go this week, whether it's to work, to recreation, or to, to wrestle with God in his discipline, take this blessing upon you. The love of God, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.